0: This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org.
1: We have about eight or nine different books on the book table in the foyer on a number of different subjects. uh, Some of them new to the Good News family and just love to have you look them over. Now, we had something happen at the print shop at Fort Pierce, Florida, uh, a few weeks ago that looked to me like one of those uh uh-oh moments. But I think I have found one good thing that's come out of it already. We were trying to um, reprint uh, a booklet on Revelation 5, The Lord of Glory, about the Lion and the Lamb. But there was some confusion in the order and uh, we got a reprint of uh, the Daniel Revelation commentary, Thy Kingdom Come, which we had plenty of copies of. So now I have plenty of copies of Thy Kingdom Come, and I wanna share them. So what I decided to do is uh, we have put a number of copies of this book on the book table in the back, and we'd like to make these available simply as a gift to the Good News family, anybody would like to have one. Uh, and I have more I could bring next week if we run out, but uh, uh, this is a one-sentence commentary. I try to say everything in one sentence, or I don't say it. But this is a one-sentence commentary on the books of Daniel and Revelation. It puts a lot of information at your fingertips, so I think it's pretty easy to use. And, um, and so these are a gift to the church. Just go back and take a copy. I've got about eight or nine other books back there on the table on different subjects. Uh, including our new commentary on Philippians. And uh, just love to have you uh, look those over and we, we share those on a donation basis. Um, we had uh, the blessing of having fellowship with uh, the Asher's tonight. And um, as we were talking, uh, I, uh, we were talking about the book ministry and I was reminded of what we mean by a donation basis. We mean three things. Number one, there's no set charge for the books. Number two, a donation is not required. If you can use the books, we want you to take them and use them, share them. Uh, If you're in a position to leave a donation and the Lord so leads, we'll put that money back into the missionary ministry. We use it for printing and postage and getting a lot of books out uh, free of charge. Uh, Had the joy of sharing a number of books that Bob took back to Australia with him when he went back today. Um, and so the donations help make that possible, where we get books on the mission field and get them out for evangelistic purposes. So I left about seven copies with my barber, uh, barber shop this week. So we love to give them out, but that helps us to do that. Uh, so we'll try to put that, those donations to good use, as the Lord would, would lead, you, lead you on that. <coughs> So good to see you, Reggie. Reggie, would you ask God's blessing on our time together, please? Pray to God Father, we thank you for this time that we've come together, study the word, Lord, Jesus us thank you for both of your which in our way to aid it in clearing in our minds those things that we have for us. We just pray that you'll the Holy Spirit be upon Brother Jehovah tonight. I'll open our hearts to see what you have for us. Thank you, and love you Jesus' Amen. Amen, thank you, sir. Oh, as far as the book ministry is concerned, um, I would not like to think of where we would be at uh, on our book covers if it wasn't for Good News Baptist Church. Um, a number of the covers of the books back there are the artwork of Mary Lillian White, who was a longtime member at Good News, and. Uh, We're still uh, in communication, and now Olivia is helping us greatly with the covers. So uh, uh, we're we're very blessed by uh, these two people who have donated their time to help us with this and uh, very grateful. As we go through some questions and answers about Bible miracles in our class notes, uh, on page three of the second section, which is the question section, uh, and uh, it's question eight. We have four sections in the notes. We probably should have numbered them all consecutively, but I didn't. Uh, But in the second section on questions and answers, page three, question eight. Did miracles happen all the time in Bible days? In other words, as you read through the Bible and look at its history, were the people used to having miracles happen all over the place every day so it became kind of a common phenomenon We think of all the great miracles in the Bible and figure, wow, Bible's full of great miracles. Uh, We often don't see miracles like that. Uh, And we might think, well, they happened all the time in the Bible. Well, did they? No. Okay. Yes, I believe that's true. Um, See, there's some people who believe that you should expect the miracle all the time I think it was Oral Roberts who popularized the phrase, a miracle a minute. You just expect all these miracles all the time. I don't believe that that's God's will. And I don't believe that that would be a good thing, a miracle a minute. And there are four reasons why I believe that. Number one, such of you does not understand the main motive for miracles such a view does not understand the main motive for miracles and i'll talk about that a little bit later tonight a second reason is this view does not fully appreciate the specialness of miracles it doesn't fully appreciate the specialness of miracles if you had miracles happening all the time they might not seem that special that awesome and you would grow accustomed to it. Um, uh, Even when God wonderfully gave a miracle every day with the manna. In the wilderness, the children of Israel, in their sinfulness, got to the place where they said, we're sick of this manna. Give us some flesh. We missed the food back in Egypt. Um, I think that that if God blesses us, we should never get familiar with his blessings. We should always be grateful and But Ralph Waldo Emerson made an interesting observation years ago. He said, if the stars came out only once every 100 years, he said, when those stars filled the sky, everybody, that would be an event. If it only happened once, I think he said, every 100 years, you might not even live long enough in your lifetime to see it. But if it came about in your lifetime, you'd want to see those beautiful stars and just hope that on the day they were supposed to come out, it wasn't cloudy in your neighborhood or something where you couldn't see them. But because they come out every night, if we're not careful, we can take them for granted. Miracles happened uh, at special times, and they were special. Uh, God always wanted us to treat them as something very remarkable and unusual, not just uh, something that would be every day. A third reason is that Such a view does not give due attention to the Word of God. Such a view of a miracle a minute doesn't give due attention to the Word of God. People think, well, I've always gotta be wowed. I've always gotta see something impressive. While they hold in their hands this amazing book that they should treasure and uh, rejoice in and dig into. But a lot of people figure, Bible teaching, doctrine, boring. Uh, I wanna be part of it, an exciting miracle fest. And uh, we forget how greatly we should be taken up with the word of God. Jesus was very concerned. His miracles were signs to point to spiritual truth. He was very concerned when the people just got too taken up with the miracles and almost wanted to see some kind of a sensational show. In Luke 16, 19 through 31, in the narrative of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus talks about how when they each come to the end of their life, the rich man dies and is buried, and in hell he lifts up his eyes, being in torment. The, um, Lazarus is carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, into paradise. And, uh, we see how different their lot is in the next life than it was in this life. And uh, the rich man cries out to Father Abraham and says, please, Father Abraham, allow Lazarus to dip his fingertip into water and just touch my tongue uh, and give me some relief for I'm tormented in this flame. And uh, Father Abraham says there's a great gulf that separates those who are in paradise from those who are in hell. And uh, they can't cross over. And he said, besides, in this life, this past life, you had your good things and Lazarus is evil, but now Lazarus had his evil things, but now he is comforted and you are in torment. And then the rich man says, Father Abram, I have five brothers. If you can't send Lazarus to help me, would you please send Lazarus back from the dead to... um, Warn my five brothers so they do not come to this place of torment. Remember what Father Abraham said? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. With all the revelation, all the miracles to support it, uh, the authoritative, clear word of God. He said, let them hear them. And the rich man contradicted Father Abraham and he said, no, Father Abraham. He said if someone would go back to them from the dead, then they would repent. It's almost like, yeah, I know they had the word of God. We all, have the, we all had the Bible. Big deal. It didn't phase us that much. If something spectacular would happen, like Lazarus come back from the realm of the dead, that would get my brother's attention. And remember, Father Abraham emphasized, they have Moses and the prophets. And if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Now what he does is he heightens the condition and lowers the result. Father Ab- the rich man said, if someone would merely come back from the realm of the dead, they would repent. And Abraham heightens the condition and lowers the result. He says, "I'll do you one better. If somebody rose from the dead, not simply come back from the world to the world of that, but rose from the dead, not only would they not repent, they wouldn't even be persuaded." In other words, the word of God is what we focus on. We have everything we need. The scriptures are sufficient, and that's what our focus should be. Miracles support the truth of revelation, but they shouldn't get our attention off of it. We see in John 6, Jesus said. You didn't follow me even for the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and your bellies were full. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, because the feeding of 5,000 pointed to me as the bread of life that came down from heaven. And if any man eat of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And he's pointing them to the spiritual truth. The miracles simply point to that, but they're not an end in and of themselves. We read in Matthew 4, 23, thank you, we read in Matthew four twenty-three that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people, and they brought unto him all sick people and those who were possessed with devils, and he healed them all. And great multitudes followed him out of Galilee and Decapolis and Judea and Jerusalem and beyond Jordan, and that's the context for the Sermon on the Mount as you go into chapter five, and seeing the multitudes who were following him, partly because of all these great miracles. The miracles were great, but they were to get people's attention so he could teach them. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed, he goes into the great sermon on the mount. In Luke 11, 27 and 28, we read, And it came to pass, as he was speaking these things, a woman in the company, a certain woman in the company, lifted up her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bear thee, and the paps that thou didst suck. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God, and keep it. That dear lady was saying, as she heard his teaching, as she saw his miracles, as she saw how he helped people, she was saying, oh, what a privilege it would be to be your mother. What a privilege it would be to have a son like you. And we read in Luke chapter one that indeed it was a privilege. Mary was blessed among women and all generations from henceforth, would call her blessed. He that is mighty hath done great things to me. It is a great privilege to be the mother of the Messiah. And she was saying, oh, to have the privilege of having a son like you, wow. And I love Christ's answer in Luke 11:27 27 and 28. He said, yea rather, which is indeed it's an honor, but there's a greater honor. And my dear woman, every single person within the sound of my voice in this audience hearing my teaching, has a far more singular privilege than that great experience. So many people would have loved to have been the mother of the Messiah. It would have been an incredible. Wow. And most people could never qualify or do that. But Jesus is saying, even though it's a great honor, don't you realize, my dear woman, that everyone within the sound of my voice has an honor greater than that, greater than the greatest honor you might imagine coming to you as a Jewish maiden. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. To be able to hear the word of the living God, which we have in our Bible, is an awesome privilege. No wonder Isaiah begins his prophecy where he says, Hear, O heavens, and hear, O earth for the Lord has spoken. The emphasis should not be on miracles as important as they are in their place, but on the word of God to which they point as signs. You say, well, Brother Yoho, I'm here, am I not? That's good, isn't it? I'm here to hear the word of God tonight. Isn't that good? It really is good. (laughs) We're mighty glad you're here. I think it's very important, and I thank you for being here. Then another reason is a miracle a minute philosophy does not value daily divine providence. Miracles have a special place in God's plan, but God's everyday providence as he works in all the things in our lives, big, little, and small, things that look negative, things that are positive, daily loads us with benefits, mercies new every morning, great is his faithfulness. The everyday blessings of life are to be treasured and appreciated. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and all thy paths uh, drop fatness or drip of abundance. Uh, Psalm 65:11. 11. Uh, we should enjoy the day. We should enjoy our surroundings. We should enjoy the everyday blessings of life and um, not uh, ever you know, get tired of them or take them for granted. God will sometimes punctuate our lives with a miracle or something extra special, but we need to be thankful. If we had a miracle a minute, we would be thankful for everyday providence. Uh, after the manna was a great miracle, but it was to meet a special condition while they were in the wilderness, they couldn't provide for themselves normally. God says to them in Deuteronomy 8, God fed you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers knew, that he might humble you and prove you to know what's in your heart and to make you know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord, doth man live. God can appoint any way to sustain you in the wilderness. When normal working and provision's not available, he can but speak and the manna will be provided. But it's a special circumstance. In Joshua 5, when they come into the land, when they begin to eat of the corn of the land, the miracles of the manna stops because now they have the blessings of Canaan, and and they're back to normal providential blessings again. So um, I think miracles are great, but the idea that you would have a miracle a moment, I think has uh, some real problems. Our next question is, identify the three great periods of miracles in Bible history. I'm not talking about the miracles that will take place at the second coming which is future, but in terms of recorded Bible history, what are the three great miracle periods in Bible history? It's not, you don't have a miracle a moment, and you don't have miracles happening all the time, do you? Uh, It is true that Ahaz's sundial went back 10 degrees or 40 minutes backwards, that was amazing, I'm not saying that there weren't miracles outside of these periods, but there were three periods in the Bible where miracles were concentrated. Only three. What were those three periods? Creation. What's that? Creation. Well, creation kind of creates the context for history in which the miracles can take place. So that's kind of, that's kind of foundational. But within that foundation, what, what three main periods do we have? Yes, Okay, yes, Jesus and the apostles. That was the greatest miracle period of all. Jesus and the apostles. What are the other two? They're in the Old Testament. Yes, ma'am? Well, that flood was pretty amazing, that's for sure. But I'm thinking of, in terms of actual individual miracles, there's a period later than that where we have a lot. Yes, ma'am? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's kind of what I was looking for, uh, although what happened to Noah was awesome. Um, I would say the period of Moses and Joshua. Israel coming out of Egypt, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, and then entering into the Promised Land, and God causing the sun to stand still, and the walls of Jericho to fall down flat, and... and, uh, uh, opening the Jordan up so they could cross over on dry land. Uh, Not to mention the the tremendous military victories against the seven nations greater and mightier than themselves. And uh, all these kings Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Um, Yeah, Moses and Joshua. Do you know what the other period is? It's between Moses and Joshua and Jesus and the apostles. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Very good. Uh, Let me put it this way. Elijah and Elisha. Great miracle periods with Elijah and Elisha. Now, according to the biblical record, uh, and I believe they did more miracles than this, but according to the biblical record, we have eight recorded miracles attributed to Elijah, and we have 16 attributed to Elisha, which I think is interesting but that was another great miracle period. There are some dear pastors and teachers who use that statistic, and I, I, I find the statistic interesting, but I don't think you can use it this way. But there are some dear pastors who use that statistic to say Elisha asked for a double portion, and so according to the record, he did twice as many miracles as Elijah. Uh, and sometimes you'll hear that preached, but I don't think that's the case because in the Mosaic law, in Deuteronomy 21:15 through 17, God says, if a man has two wives, and uh, the one wife is loved and the other is hated, and they both have a child, if the child of the wife that is hated is indeed the firstborn, then you must give the double portion to him and not to the son of the favorite wife if the son of the one who is hated is the oldest. And um, a double portion there simply means that the inheritance would be divided up, but the oldest son would get twice as much as his brother. That happened in Luke 15 with the parable of the prodigal son. uh, When the younger son came and said, uh, "Divide unto me the portion of the inheritance is coming to me, and then he took it all and wasted it in riotous living on a far off land. But he would have received one third. The uh, older brother would have received two thirds. It doesn't mean that the younger son would get twice the inheritance, his father could only give the inheritance, but it meant he would get a double portion within the inheritance. So the idea that because Elisha did 16 miracles and Elijah did eight, and therefore he has a double anointing, I don't think that's the idea. I think it is interesting that Elisha did have God's power upon him and he did twice as many miracles, that's interesting. But the double portion has the idea of not double the inheritance, uh, as if Elisha had more of the spirit than Elijah did. It's the idea that when you divide the father's inheritance, the oldest son would get double the amount of any of the other children. But uh, it is interesting that uh, you have all those miracles being done then. Uh, Elisha is a very beautiful type of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the way, even in in his miracle when he multiplies the loaves and things like that to feed 100 men. He's a very interesting picture prophecy of Christ in his ministry. But um, that would lead me to this next question. Do these three special seasons of miracles, and there are other great miracles that are not in this. For example, God rescuing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the burning, fiery furnace heated seven times uh, more than it was normally heated. There are some other great miracles, but they're concentrated in these three periods. And so when we realize that you have a concentration of miracles with Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Christ and the apostles, the question I would like to ask is, Do these three special seasons of miracles have a common denominator? Is there something about these periods of time that would lead God to, in a special way, pour out miracle power? Do we see a common denominator between these three periods? Yes, sir. I'm not good at cell phones, Joyce. Excuse me. Oh Thanks. Sorry about that.
0: But is, it, is it possible that God was simply trying to show his power uh, in that way, more or less in a, in a in, like you said, in a concentrated way, but it was just...
1: Well, that's a good point. God could perform miracles here and there for good reasons but maybe sometimes he would just like to overwhelm people with what he could do. Uh, Sort of like if you're going with your family to watch fireworks on 4th of July, and then you have that grand finale, you know, where you just kind of say, wow, uh, the other was good, but this is really good. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that could be involved, sir. Yes, sir. I believe that's involved. I'm gonna narrow the answer down a little bit, but I believe that's involved. Yes, Mike.
0: Like a transfer of power, a transfer of parents uh, from Moses to Joshua. Joshua was confirmed because he, he performed miracles like Moses did and Elisha was confirmed because he performed miracles as Elijah did and then the apostles, were confirmed because Christ said, you'll do greater miracles
1: than I have done. That's good, Mike. I I never thought of that before, and I like that. In each case, you had a significant transition of power uh, from Moses to Joshua, Elijah Elisha, Christ to the apostles. Uh, uh, That wasn't the reason I was thinking of, but I think that's very interesting to observe. I think that's an interesting point. Yes, ma'am. But I would say the, the yeah. common denominator. Yeah, Rosetta, thank you. I, um, I um, think that uh, since the greatest explosion of miracles was with Jesus and the apostles, certainly you can see the others as a buildup. I think that could be involved. Let me tell you what I'm looking at, though, because all these answers are helpful. I believe that the common denominator is to confirm divine revelation. To confirm divine revelation. When Moses and Joshua came on the scene, you had the giving of the law and the establishment of the Old Testament covenant. You had great new revelation being introduced. The Jewish people were being welded into a nation, a kingdom of priests and uh, uh, they were um, had a special mission to the nations. God was establishing them by taking them out of Egypt, He was getting them settled in the promised land. He was establishing His covenant people and giving them His law. The Old Testament law was the basis of other revelation that would be given all through the Old Testament uh, the law and the prophets. So there was a sense in which God was bringing together, his great nation and a covenant relationship, he was laying the foundation by giving them the law, which would be the basis of all further revelation in the Old Testament. And to show that this revelation came from God, and this covenant and this nation was established by God, he gave all these miracles to help confirm these in history. And the Egyptians and others were overwhelmed. They heard about it in Canaan and everything. No God like your God. Then when Israel's history reached a very, very low moment, Elijah and Elisha ministered in the Northern Kingdom. They were already in apostasy with the worship of the golden calves. They were already in disfavor. Of all the 19 kings who reigned on the throne of the Northern Kingdom Some were better than others, but all of them were bad. Not a single good one among them. And it got even worse through the influence of Jezebel. Well, Omri also and Jezebel and Ahaz, um, the Northern kingdom went officially into Baal worship. Not only did they worship the golden calves, but they officially became Baal worshipers and persecuted the prophets of Jehovah. Baal worship was so corrupt that God said, Israel, take the land and destroy everything that breathes, eradicate that cancer. It's, uh, they, 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 uh, they had worship in the form of sexual orgies, snake worship, uh, Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, would sometimes be wading through the gore of her enemies. They could have blood-curdling cruelty, infant sacrifice. Um, It was a very corrupt, and uh, now the northern kingdom has become officially worshipers of Baal. And God raises up Elijah and Elisha to turn their hearts back to the God of the covenant. So with all of Old Testament, Revelation at stake and hanging in the balance. God raises up Elijah and Elisha to call the people's hearts back to God and gives a lot of miracles to show that he is blessing that call to biblical revelation, would seem to me. And then when Christ comes and brings the new covenant, when he brings the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son? And he gives sevenfold description of the Son to show what a wonderful privilege it is that God would speak to us through his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, This son, this glorious son, he's now speaking through. And he gives more miracles than ever through Christ and the apostles to show that now the new covenant in Christ's blood is being established. It seems to me that the common denominator of these three great miracle periods is confirming divine revelation. The basis of Old Testament revelation and the law, the calling of people back to them in the hour of dark apostasy, and then the glorious fulfillment of all the Old Testament in the New Testament revelation in the time of Christ and the apostles. Now this leads to my next question. What is the one main divine motive for miracles? There are different reasons why God performs miracles, but what is probably the main reason? I think we have a hint of it in those three miracle periods. Yes, Sandy?
0: Yes, ma'am. He still
1: has the, is the only one be worshiped and honored. Yeah, I read, a, I read a writer some years ago that shared something to me that I thought was fascinating. He was commenting on 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he said, in that verse, you have the great burden of both the Old and New Testament. The great burden of the Old Testament is there is one God and the great burden in the New Testament is that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the main reason for miracles is to point to the greatness of the one true God and to establish his revelation as given in the Bible. And that's why I think we have those three main miracle periods with reference to confirming divine revelation or supporting a call back to it. And it points to the one true God. He's the true God. Now, I'd like to share a few passages that I think help spell this out for us and would be grateful for your reading. And one of the reasons I'm laboring this point is many of our charismatic friends will say, you're not a fool gospel church, because you don't believe in all the signs that took place back then in the first century, and uh, you don't emphasize all of the sign gifts and tongues and all of that, and uh, you're not a full gospel church. You only preach part of the gospel. I think it's very important to know that the main purpose of miracles is to confirm the revelation already given in the Bible, and in the Bible we have God's Word and the historical miracles that support it, and that's where our focus should be. Miracles can be done for other reasons, like helping people, clearing a path for the gospel. But the main purpose for miracles has already been served within the covers of the Bible, to demonstrate divine revelation and make that miraculous power a matter of historical record in support of that revelation given and recorded in the Bible. Um, I think it helps us when we interact with charismatics to point out that uh, those signed gifts in the first century were to confirm that these were God's messengers and he was doing a special event. But they were largely for the first century. God laid the foundation to the church and the apostles and, and uh, prophets, Ephesians 2.20. Then you build on that foundation and we have a, a, a great book to build on. But you don't expect all those signed miracles uh, to continue. Uh, they've served their purpose. The main purpose of miracles is to confirm divine revelation and we have that revelation now completely given in the Bible, and the great miracles that support it, and it's a matter of permanent record. And it should be in the Bible that we focus, not that God can't, for other reasons, do miracles today, but the main reason has already been fulfilled, and we're pointed back to the Bible. Would somebody read for us John 14, 8 through 12? John 14, 8 through 12, thank you, Kenny.
0: Father, and the supplies of us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me? Oh, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me or else believe me for the very works sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father.
1: Thank you, Kenny. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father which hath sent me he doeth the works believe me that i am in the father and the father in me but even if my bare word is not sufficient to help you believe though it should be then i appeal to the works believe for the very work's sake they show who i am they show what i've come to do the purpose of miracles is to confirm revelation and the claims of god's messengers that they're sent by him Uh, let's have mark 16, 15, 220. You read. Would somebody read that for us, please? Mark 16, 15, through 20. Dave, thank you. And so
0: Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 16. Dave, I'm sorry. 16? Yeah, I think you're in 15. Yeah.
0: Okay. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover so then after the lord had spoken unto them he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of god and they went forth and preached everywhere the lord worked with them and confirming the word with signs following
1: amen these signs thank you they shall follow those who believe on my name this impressive list of miracles to confirm the establishment of the gospel in the world at its inception. And so they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. The main purpose of signs was to confirm the word, including these spectacular signs, these sign miracles of the first century. That purpose has now been fulfilled. Let's look at another neat passage, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Would somebody read for us Hebrews 2, 1 through 4? Uh, Okay. uh, uh, Okay, I think uh, Sandy and you uh, continue. If you go ahead, thank you. Thank you. It's very important that we give serious attention to divine revelation. In the Old Testament economy, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense reward. Now in the New Testament, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which first began to be spoken to us by the Lord himself and then was confirmed unto us by his followers? God also bearing them witness. If I remember correctly, that's aorist tense in the Greek, which is a strong past tense. Once and for all, he bears them witness in the miracles he gave in the first century. God bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with uh, diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. When this so great salvation, which first began to be spoken by Christ and then was confirmed unto us by those who heard him, the apostles and first century witnesses and preachers, God confirmed their witness when the gospel was first being established in the world with all these wonderful miracles. He bore witness that this was truly from heaven with the miracles he gave that were unmistakable. And that's the main purpose of miracles, to confirm divine revelation that we now have in the Bible with the record of the miracles that confirm it. And so when people say you're not a full gospel church because maybe you're not drinking deadly poison and, and, and miraculously surviving, or uh, you're, you're not having a healing service or things like that, though God can miraculously heal in answer to the prayer of faith. We're not to expect miracles of the same sign nature type, and we're not to expect miracles on the same order because they've already served their wonderful purpose in laying the foundation of the church now built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. And so I emphasize that because sometimes our charismatic friends will say, uh, you have to have all these miracles. Well, God can do miracles when he wants to. And there have been some wonderful miracles of healing, for example, uh, people on our prayer list. But the main purpose of miracles has already been fulfilled. And we shouldn't act as if it's all supposed to still happen today. The foundation's laid. Now we built on that foundation. Here's another question. that was kind of brought to our minds by Kenny's reading. What are these greater works than these, which we shall do? John 14, 12, where he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. We stand in amazement when we see Jesus feed 5,000 people out of a little lad's lunch. We stand in amazement when he says, be still, and the raging storm becomes perfectly placid. What can we do here in the local church? That would be greater miracles than these. Have you ever wondered about that? Yes, Sandy. What I think about when I read that is greater works, you are sent out to, to everywhere in the world
0: to bring the lost people to you. So that's where we are sent out. Go ye
1: therefore. Yeah, so, I don't know all that John 14, 12 means, because we are duly impressed (laughs) when Christ feeds the 5,000 or raises Lazarus from the dead. These are impressive credentials. But Jesus said that his followers, his immediate followers, and those down through the Christian centuries would do even greater works than these. And we gotta ask ourselves, what's meant by these greater works? And it seems like, as Sandy indicates, a big part of that answer is fulfilling the great commission of taking the gospel to all the world. Yeah, which is worth more than all the world itself, Matthew sixteen twenty-six. Yes, did you have a comment?
0: Yeah.
1: And, and that's a good point too, because Jesus said in John sixteen seven something that he knew we would be hard pressed to initially receive. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth: it is expedient for you that I go away. John sixteen seven. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will prove the world of sin, etc. Jesus said, as wonderful as was to have you here with me, 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 with you, in my bodily presence, doing these things. It's to your advantage, it's expedient that I go away. Because when the Holy Spirit comes and applies the work of my life and the cross, in your lives and in the working out of the Great Commission, things that are very dear to God's heart are going to be happening all over and all around the world, and you're part of that great mission. And I don't know all that's involved with those greater works, but I believe that when you have a New Testament local church that's involved in great commission ministry, going and baptizing and teaching, I believe the privilege of serving in that local church in fulfillment of the Great Commission. It's such a great honor that if we could grasp it more, we would be volunteering to do a whole lot more for God and saying, please use me, please use me. I want to be involved. This is where history is happening. This is what's really important. I love that phrase in Ephesians 1, that when God raised Christ from the dead with his mighty power and caused them to be seated at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and have put all things under his feet, and I love this phrase, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. All the power, all the authority that Christ has is given to him for the sake of his church. Gave him to be head over all things to his church, and that's why the Great Commission's introduced, all power authority is given to me, go either All the power and blessing of heaven is upon this work it's so close to God's heart that he's commissioned all of us to be part of through his local church. And that means to be involved in the work of the local church is an awesome honor. And however gifted you are and can be involved, Lord, please use me here. And we might not fully understand all that John 14:12 means, but I think it means, wow, what we're doing in the local church is important to you, Lord. Please let me have a, a greater part in that. Please help me to make a difference. Did I see any other comments or hands raised? Yes, ma'am. Um,
0: that is a, a
1: great privilege. Um, Um, we do have the complete canon. And that is a great privilege. He may have been thinking of that too. You have to be able to have God's very word in our hands is awesome. Anyone else? Yes, sir?
0: You said something interesting earlier. Uh, You said if we could grasp just um, how important that is in terms of the gospel being miracle. I think what you were hinting at is that we would do that more. What do you think we need to do to grasp it more that it's so that it's not so cerebral, but it actually is something that just oozes out of us?
1: That's quite a question. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the answer I give, you probably won't hear in too many fundamental churches. I believe the answer is in the structure of the book of Romans. I believe that if doctrine is preached and taught like it ought to be, that's a key. You see, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. But how do we love him? We know what our duty is, but we so often get tired, get distracted, fail, fall short. If we're always told what our duty is, we know it's our duty, but if we're not careful, we'll feel like we're legalistically beat to death. Our love to God's an answering love. We love him because he first loved us. But how do we know how much he loved us? That's where doctrine comes in. And so after giving us a tremendous exposition of doctrine in Romans one through 11, He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. In the light of all these wonderful things that God's done for you, how great he is, how much we need him, what a privilege to serve him, how tremendous to be part of his program and him involving us, the mercies of God. We want to serve him. So doctrine tells us how much he loves us. What a privilege is to serve him. And it always has a practical bent and uh, here's how we do it. But notice that probably one of the greatest sections in all the Bible on doctrines, Romans 1 through 11. And Paul calls that the mercies of God. I beseech you by the mercies of God. Wherever you see the word therefore, you should look to see where it's therefore. It always points back to the preceding context. But notice before you come to Romans 12, 1 and 2, you come to one of the greatest doxologies in scripture. Romans 11, 33 through 36. When Paul thinks of how wonderful doctrine is and how, as he says in verse 32 of Romans 11, God have concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy on all. At that point, he's so overwhelmed with the doctrine he's been sharing that he breaks out into doxology and a scripture of praise to God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor or who hath first given to him it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Doctrine, when properly taught, leads to doxology. Wow, what a great God he is. What a privilege to be part of his program. When we realize what a wonderful thing it is to know a God like this and what he's done for us and how he wants to use us. Then the natural response is total dedication. So one of your greatest passages on total dedication in the Bible is Romans 12, 1 and two. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service and be not conformed to this world, but be it transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable perfect will of God. And then when you go into Romans 12 through 16, you've got one of the greatest duty sections in all the Bible. Abhorring that which is evil, cleaving to that which is good, overcoming evil with good, uh, loving your brother in Christian liberty, and all those things that it talks about. Uh, and that's one of the great duty sections. But I think that the structure of Romans has a great message for us, which is this. Doctrine, when it's properly taught, leads to doxology. We're full of praise that he's such a great God we naturally want to give our lives to him please take it lord i don't want to do it on my own anymore and then we're asking god now tell me how can i show this dedication how can i follow through and then paul says do this and this and i think in our churches if we realize how wonderful god is and worship him dedicate our hearts to him out of great love and joy then we're going to be asking pastor sunday school teacher what can I do in the area of family? What can I do in the area of uh, shattered relationships? What can I do in terms of uh, the lost? What can I do in terms of missions? What can I do in terms of giving? Uh, what can I do in terms of uh, being good on my job? Uh, and uh, basically the people are then saying, Pastor, Sunday school teacher, evangelist, tell us. Because we want to. And it's a, it's, a, it's a blessing. It's not like... You're just not doing enough and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. There's, I guess, a place for that. We need to be skinned alive sometimes, but we love him because we first love us. It's an answering love. I guess you could put it this way. My main motive for living for God and serving God is not out of a suspicion of what God will do to me, but out of an inspiration of what God has done for me. And so Thiessen begins his textbook on introductory lectures to systematic theology by saying, it used to be that theology was the queen of the sciences and systematic theology the crown on the queen's head. But theology in our churches has fallen into great disrepute. They say, we don't want all that boring stuff. It's dry, it's academic. And sometimes it is taught and preached that way. But doctrine is basically the great spiritual truths about God and who he is and why we need him and what he's done for us and how he wants to use us, the mercies of God. Then we respond in worship. Then we dedicate our lives. And then we want to know what the duties are and we have motive power to do them. So I didn't want to go all the way around the block to answer your good question, but I I think the structure of the Book of Romans provides a great key for us here to be dynamic in duty, because uh, we want to serve God, and it's exciting.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened. And we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.